cliffcentral.com. We can't assume that the trends that existed before COVID will still continue now. The consumer behavior is changing on a weekly basis as they get new data points all the time. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Market Share. This is where I chat to people who influence the way brands are built, big brands and small, as well as people who have had a big influence on the marketing of industries and institutions. So, when your industry, the biggest in the world, is facing an existential crisis, who can you bank on to help steady the ship and ensure that a once-growing sector returns to its former place in the South African sun? My guest today is Sisa Chona, the CEO of South African Tourism. Welcome, Sisa. Thank you, Rich. Thank you very much. Good. I'm going to start with a very obvious question, unfortunately. How badly has COVID affected our tourism industry? And any idea of how many jobs we've lost? Sure. Um, I like to open up when people ask me the question with telling them that I had a, in a pre-COVID, I had a big afro and now I've got no hair, essentially. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the impact of COVID has really, really been deep within the tourism sector, not only in South Africa, but globally. You know, at the height of the pandemic, 90% of global airlines were grounded. And then you can imagine the ripple effect, you know, of that. And, uh, you know, in, in, in times of crisis, in times of unknown, countries tend to close in for protection and close up. So many of the borders were actually, you know, locked down, kind of tightened up. And uh, yeah, it, it, tourism came to a halt. We also discovered, you know, as we learned more about the pandemic, that it needs mobility and people to move, and that's how it transfers. And uh, we are in the business of uh, transferring or making people move, you know, across the country. So those two uh, were opposing each other. You know, within the tourism space, we also have the conferencing environment, which is the MICE. And uh, to give you a bit of an idea, I mean, at any given point in time, you can have 10,000 delegates descending down onto the Cape Town ICC for five days, you know. Uh, and again, you can imagine the ripple effect of that on hotels, on shuttle services, on food, restaurants, and also just the entire ecosystem. You know, with one fell swoop, we got cancellations on daily basis, and uh, that had a big, big impact there. How many jobs do you think we've lost, Cesar? Oof, that, that's a running tally, to be honest with you. Look. The sector employs about 1.5 million people. And essentially what has tended to happen is that with each month that goes by without the sector being not able to trade, we get what we call supply-side deterioration, right? So meaning more and more businesses fall by the wayside, they either shut down permanently or some of them, you know, close shop until they have an idea of where things are going. Now, in a normal environment, and I say in a normal environment with a, a country in a fiscus with money, what would happen is when the government holds back a sector from operating, right, for the greater good of the country, like in this case, uh, what is expected then of that government is to inject money into that sector to keep it going, right? And uh, because of our very weak fiscus environment, our government was simply not able to do that to any material kind of uh, impact. And as a result now, with each month that goes by, we see more and more businesses falling by the wayside. You know, there's a curve that we did that after month three, if still businesses are not allowed to operate, that curve becomes steeper in terms of the level of deterioration. We are now at lockdown level two, 
which essentially um, domestic tourism is allowed. The nirvana comes when international borders open and you get a full swing of the sector coming through. So we're grateful that we've opened up uh, domestic, but it's still got some way to go before we bring in international. And before COVID, what was our annual tourism growth looking like? Oh, that's fantastic. Um, globally, you know, tourism has been growing at 4% per annum. I'm talking about globally. In 2019, 1.5 billion international trips actually happened. And uh, South Africa's market share of that was 10.9 million, right? So we've been growing quite steadily. And uh, it is anchored in our national development plan as a country that tourism is one of those sectors that we really want to pull the lever on. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, COVID disturbed us. In the first three months of this year, January, February, and March, we just had, you know, exponentially growth that uh, really was setting us on a nice trajectory. But it all came to a halt on the 26th of March, unfortunately. Do you think South Africans realize how important the tourism industry is? Because I remember an old campaign that was run a few years back that said something like, with every tourist coming to South Africa, seven jobs are created. Do people realize that, how important the industry is? Yeah, look, I I think we now have a better appreciation for it. Tourism is also one of those sectors that are very difficult to measure because it permeates itself across many other sectors. And I've got a running challenge that I have to all my colleagues to say, show me a sector and I'll show you how tourism contributes to it. You know, so when a tourist arrives in the country, they've got forex and the change money. And suddenly now the banks get excited around that side, you know, and, uh, you know, they get into shuttle services, hotels, construction and, and, and. So it's appreciation is really actually highlighted now. Uh, when tourism stops, you start to see the gaps that are starting to, you know, permeate itself through from service stations, fuel retailers, an example, starting to see now, geez, their turnovers have come down. You know, another example I like to make, Ridge, is in uh, Santon City, the mall over here. They've got this row called um, Diamond, Diamond Walk or something. You know, that place that you and I run far away from, you know, because of all, <laughs> because of all those shops. Now, and I tell people, go there and just Close your eyes and just listen and listen to the voices of people walking through there. You'll see that they're actually not South African. It's actually people that come outside the country basically and come and spend in those places. Now, the issue here is that that spend that is recorded in Santin City, Diamond Rock, is recorded as retail and not as tourism. So therefore, you start to see now the tourism numbers are not a true representation of the power of getting people to come to South Africa and spend the power of actually getting people, you know, to move around within the country and spend as well. And I think that's, you know, we've got to find creative ways of really telling that story and that there's a direct correlation between when tourism does well and the economy in our country doing well as well. Absolutely. So what percentage of real GDP do you think tourism represents? Even if you take a guess, give me a rough idea. Well, the the official one is 8% at the moment, right? And, um, until we've got a better way of measuring it, we'll use that. And and part of our target is essentially to move that to double-digit figures, you know, in terms of uh, GDP contribution. And now that things have eased up, see, so at the stage two, what sort of improvement have you seen locally? Well, first of all, there's a great relief that when the president said we're moving down to uh, level two and that uh, domestic tourism is allowed to operate, uh, phase one of our recovery plan, so really uh, – box ticked on that side. There's a lot of pent-up demand sitting out there, you know, with all of us being cooped up in our homes or wherever we're at. And really what we're seeing now is a spike 
in uh, tourism uptick, you know, especially on weekends, uh, leisure type. And, uh, and again, as I said, all of that is about an expression of freedom. The bush is getting popular. The beaches are getting popular. Rural side is getting very popular. So any place that has got uh, big open spaces, which lends itself quite well for social distancing. However, with that said, the urban areas are struggling. You know, the urban hotels, as an example, um, where we've seen government travel really come to a halt. We've seen corporates not really picking up travel like they used to before and conferencing still uh, being something that is actually not happening. So all the city hotels are really struggling. Well, you're absolutely right, because I've seen such a pickup in Franschuk here. On the weekends, this little town is full again, which is great to see. Will you continue with the shot left campaign that you used to have, or are you going to do uh, promote more local tourism? Oh yeah, I mean, as it for the foreseeable future, uh, domestic tourism is where we are focusing at. What COVID did, though, Rich, is that it gave us an opportunity to actually recalibrate the space a bit. So, if you just look at most strong economies around the world. They're built on a very strong domestic sector overlaid by international one. South Africa is the other way around. And structurally, that made us quite weak. We saw aspects of this when uh, there was an outbreak in Ebola in West Africa. Then the whole world decided that all of Africa has got Ebola, right? Even though we're quite far away. That impacted us as a country as well and showed our weakness in terms of being over-reliant on international. And even now, essentially, within the COVID environment. So the whole world is recalibrating and everyone is focusing on domestic travel. And what that does then is that we want to build a solid base of domestic activity and then start to fan out then, as I say, into regional, then international. And you get a nice portfolio balance as an example, where you're not too heavy in within one sector uh, or the other. But, but South Africa is such a, a wonderful country that we also now have the opportunity to direct some of the traffic of South Africans that used to holiday overseas to say, well, the borders are closed. How then do we give you and showcase to you, you know, different parts of the country that you absolutely did not know? No, I mean, it's a, I've started traveling locally as well, which I really, really enjoyed. I mean, it's a fantastic place. How is South African tourism funded? Is it a joint venture with the tourism industry and the government or how is it funded? South African tourism is a national tourism body. Uh, it is 100% reports into the Ministry of Tourism. So primarily our funding comes from the fiscus. However, about 10% of our budget contributions comes from the private sector in uh, what you call the tourism levies. So when you go to the hotel, as an example, and you pay your bill, you usually see there's a 1% tourism levy. So that collected and accumulated constitutes about 10% of our, our, our budget. The question, however, is during this COVID time, we've really been asking ourselves, what does a modern day tourism body look like? And how is it constituted? And what role does a private sector play within that partnership? So we're doing some service to look what's happening around the world with other tourism bodies. And it's something that we are making to the shareholder representative as to, you know, how to reshape it and bring some uh, energy into it. How do you think it will change or what what do you have in mind? Well, look, personally, I'm a very big, big, big fan of uh, private and public sector collaboration. Uh, I fundamentally believe that's how you're going to change the fortune of this country with the two sides really coming together. One being private sector led, 
and public sector supported and guided to make sure that we've got the right policies, doing the right things and the right you know, conducive environment and then allow space and time for the private sector to really drive it in a very formidable, commercially and sustainable manner, taking into account the challenges that we have in this country around inclusivity. And I think if we can get that right, we'll be able to kind of push forward. And uh, there's so much headroom for tourism in this country that it's a, it's a growing opportunity, but how do we do it in an inclusive manner so that all of us can see uh, our contribution to it? No, I agree with you. I think it's a very, very good point you make there. You know, I've heard some rumors that we might go to level one at the end of October. Um, is, is that true? Is that just a rumor? Obviously, that'll open up foreign travel again. Is it a possibility? Well, I'm crossing my fingers every single day, Rich. We'll complete the phases of the loop in terms of our recovery. As I said, whilst domestic tourism is important, it is not enough to actually lift the entire sector and get it back to some form of normality. So that's something really crossing our fingers over. We were fortunate in a way that the pandemic hit us or went down to heavy lockdown during our off-peak season, right, our winter season. And what that did, it gave us a lot of opportunity and space to observe what was happening in the Northern Hemisphere. And they were in their peak season. We both learned what to do and what not to do, essentially. Where we are at, we've got to balance this in a couple of ways. One, I fundamentally believe that the tourism industry is ready for um, you know, international travel in the sense that they have put all the health protocols and operational protocols to the best of the ability, to the best of the world, in order to have a safe uh, tourism experiences. What I am anxious about is, is the country ready to accept tourists in? And by that I mean, as long as South Africa is still in the top 10 globally in the number of positive cases of corona, we're not going to be an attractive destination. The world right now is actually classifying other countries into red, yellow, or green zones or colors, basically. Basically to say that when I look at South Africa, if I am the U.S., right, do I issue travel advisories to them or am I comfortable, you know, with how they are handling the pandemic? And I think that's now the phase that we all have to go through. We're seeing our numbers come down and that's quite encouraging, but we're not out of the woods yet. And I just, I'm, nervous every single day that we don't uh, relax and kind of relapse then and kind of get ourselves up into the spiking numbers again. Again, as I said, the Northern Hemisphere is giving us great lessons of what's going on. We're seeing the UK, as an example, literally just within Europe, on a weekly basis, issue travel advisories to different countries, whether it's Spain, whether it's France, or even Germany, as an example. So we did an exercise where we simulated that with the current statistics and figures that South Africa has. And we are plumbly landing in the red zone at the moment. However, within the next two weeks, if we keep, you know, uh, with this downward trajectory, we will be in the yellow zone. And that's where you want to be, in that cautionary yellow zone and ultimately into the green zone. And what these zones are, just to at a very high level, is that when you are in the red, literally countries issue travel advisories, says, I don't encourage you to travel to that country. If you're in the yellow, they say you can travel, but with caution. And what they do, some of them, is that they would subject you to the mandatory 14-day quarantine when you return. And green is like safe to travel. Now, we've got to look at 
How are countries labeling the country? That's the first one. Second one is the reciprocal. How is South Africa then looking at other countries around the world? So whilst the U.S. may be important to us as a big source market, but are we comfortable with bringing Americans into the country and the risk of potentially importing in uh, the virus as well? And I think that's probably where the difficult decisions are lying at a country level at the moment. So do you think they might lift international restrictions? We, in other words, we might open our doors, but to only to certain countries. Do you think that might happen at stage one of, of lifting it? I really think so. I, th- I don't think there'll be a wholesale opening of borders to all countries. Just like every other country is doing, we will open up, but then also select travel corridors, we call them, you know, as to which ones we are comfortable with in terms of allowing travel. And I think, again, it's about being cautious. It's also about getting confidence uh, as well. So obviously, selfishly from our side, is we'd like to see those countries that we know we've got such a huge reliance on from the international side, them being in the green zone. But it all depends on how they are managing uh, the pandemic at the moment. You know, I, I read an article this morning and I see what, as an example, the UK, which is such an important market for us, where, you know, I think... Um, the Prime Minister is announcing today that no gatherings of more than six people at a time, because again, they're trying to close up and then manage the pandemic. So it's, it's not only how we are handling it, but also how our source markets or, or the origin of our travelers. So on that point, what are our biggest foreign markets, Cesar? Europe. If I had to go to a country level, it's the UK, which is number one. Uh, the second one is uh, Germany. Third is the US. And uh, fourth is um, France, as an example. So Europe is a very important market for us. You know, as I said earlier on, we get 10.9 million international tourists coming to the country. Out of that 10.9 million, about 10% of it, which is about 1.6 million, come from Europe. However, they contribute something like 40% to the spend. So fewer in numbers relatively, but bigger in spend. And I think that's where ultimately the rubber hits the road. It's people coming here, spending in our economy and shoring up our GDP. And a place like China, which seems to be losing friends like Australia and the US and so on, is there not a big opportunity for us to get more Chinese people and Indian people in here? Yeah. So the key thing here is that what COVID did is also made us press a reset button in terms of which countries should we cozy up to. Because, again, as an example, the fastest growing region or country for us pre-COVID was Brazil. It was really going at phenomenal rate. But the problem now is that their cases are rising on a daily basis. You know, So therefore, it would not be prudent of us to make further investments in that market until things change. India, also the same uh, way as well. So the world has really become quite fluid. And we now are re-looking at our old matrix to say, well, are there new countries that are bringing about opportunities, right, because of just how they've managed and handled the pandemic? Or how then do we resuscitate uh, our traditional source markets where we've got long-standing investments over there? And it's going to be a tightrope to walk through, I think, for the next two to three years as we recalibrate you know, what's happening around the world. Even with airlines, you know, as we, the borders open, we now have to connect South Africa to the world again. And we can't assume that uh, the airlines that used to fly here, A, still exist, number one, and B, will continue with those frequencies as well, because they themselves 
are also recalibrating and re-looking at their root strategies. You know, so there's a lot of moving pieces, basically, uh, to consider here. What airlines are operating internally at the moment? If I had to fly to Joburg now, what are my choices? Well, again, here yeah, is um, domestic uh, travel is fully allowed. So all airlines uh, that have a local operating license are able to operate. Is SAA flying now or not? No, no, no. They are still in uh, business rescue uh, negotiations also with Comair as well. So those two airlines uh, have suspended operations. But when and if they're ready, they are fully able to pick up and, and then start to fly. When I speak to some of the airlines, for instance, uh, FlySafe Air, which is probably was the first off the gate, they are also cautious in terms of deploying of equipment on specific routes. I mean, the Joe Bay Cape Town route is one of the busiest routes in the world, right? And we are nowhere near those previous frequencies that we had. And they are also, you know, testing it out with supply and demand. What we are seeing is that uh, midweek travel is really suppressed. Corporates have learned that they don't need to have their employees flying to all the different branches all the time. They can simply zoom as an example. So we're seeing that really being suppressed. Government has stopped traveling, you know, and that's big business. Uh, with, uh, you know, Cape Town being, uh, they having parliament, you should, you would see all government employees traveling quite heavily all the time. Now that has stopped. So therefore that demand has really kind of, um, been moved away. We're starting to see then the weekend starting to build up again as the leisure side starts to pick through. So it's really going to be difficult to really speculate as to what the next three months will look like and what airlines are doing. They are feeling their way through it and making it up as they go along and just using live data to really make informed decisions. And what are the top, say, five places that foreigners visit when they come to South Africa? Oh, without a doubt, uh, the Cape is uh, top of the pile. Uh, Cape Town, including the Wineland as well, is a typical favorite. The Garden Route is, uh, it's, it's amazing when I travel overseas and I just meet people and they speak of the Garden Route in such intimate detail that even I get intimidated about <laughs> some of the details they know and everything else. So that, that one has really been uh, quite popular. Uh, and obviously Kruger, you know, um, a Kruger National Park, just in terms of its size, as is in terms of its offerings as well. I mean, Kruger is the same size as Belgium or Israel. I mean, that's just how, that's how big it is. And that's our zoo, you know, so those are quite popular. Now, at the back of that, then we've also been scratching our heads, Rich, quite a lot during this quiet period to say, well, when we open up again, how then are we going to ensure the spread of tourism across the country so the impact and the benefits of tourism are just not concentrated or over concentrated in these areas and the whole idea is to saying let's grow when you focus on other geographic areas in the country it does not take away from the likes of the western cape but rather adds on right what you don't want to do is have a phenomenon called over tourism which may then over time depreciate the experience that tourists have over a specific area. It's about how then do we spread across the country and uh, really double the number of international arrivals by 2030. Wow, that's, that's exciting. How are we teasing foreigners at the moment? Are we doing any promotional stuff? Are we teasing them, saying opening soon? Don't forget this place. Are we saying anything to anybody? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the marketing team really had to... Uh, pivot quite fundamentally there. So at the height of the pandemic, it just did not make sense to continue with our previous kind of marketing initiatives of profiling South Africa 
whether it was a billboard, whether it's through uh, TV or whatever it is, right? And uh, we had to actually start messaging out there, both internationally and domestically, to say, don't travel now, travel later when it's safer to do so, right? And and again, it was all about saying, how do we position South Africa as a caring brand, as a brand that is awake to the realities that people are dying, basically, and that this phenomenon is impacting the entire world. We are now at the phase then that says, how then do we start to communicate to the world that things are getting better? And it's going to be led inside out, starting with domestic, right? Uh, from next week, we're running a campaign where we are informing and educating South Africans about the health and safety protocols that have been put in place. This is really putting information in the hands of every South African. So when you do travel and you visit a destination, you are able to know what to expect and also more importantly to demand certain things, you know, that, uh, you know, you feel are important to your health and safety. Globally, we've got nine offices around the world and their job is to be keeping South Africa top of mind as a destination that is not yet open, but at the same time to saying, you know, there's no better place, you know, in terms of for authentic experiences and, and, and basically as South Africa. The difficult at the moment is, you know, we'd love to get a date as quickly as possible because then we can build up towards a certain climax. Without a date, you just kind of float around. And unfortunately, um, as much as we'd love to everyone, we take guidance, you know, from the presidency in terms of when we're able to communicate such. What is our current positioning statement or payoff line that, that's used for tourism overseas? There's a couple of them, and they're all kind of uh, itemized for, for each specific market, you know. And, uh, you know, the world is really moving away from a, a spray and pray kind of approach, where you understand, as an example, that the Chinese market is not one that is really interested in adventure tourism, as an example. So you speak differently to them as you would do, you know, from an India market or even a Europe market as well, you know. So the taglines that we keep, you know, kind of, uh, you know, making sure that we are consistent around is inspiring new ways, basically, you know, in terms of how we showcase ourselves. To yeah, them. that's been that's been around for a couple of years, so inspiring new ways. Yeah, it is. Uh, we're ready for a, a, a refresh in a very, very big and fundamental way. And uh, we have made the case for that, you know, at the at cabinet level. And uh, we're waiting for a country approval to move forward with that. With a smaller budget, I assume, you know, if we look at the competition, which is the world, uh, with a smaller budget, how disruptive are we in marketing terms, Cesar? Yeah, absolutely. We've got to be tactical, you know. So we, uh, we, we can't compare ourselves with the budgets of the Middle East, as an example, you know, which literally just blow up our minds. So um, we're using a lot of data and insights uh, to be deliberate and specific. Which target audiences, which countries do we want to make investment in and what kind of returns are we expecting from those countries? And uh, using a lot of digital technology, as I said, led by data and insights, allow us to be deliberate and literally drop a pin as to where we want to um, to be focused at. At the same time, Rich, it's important to note that we can't assume that the trends that existed before COVID will still continue now. The consumer behavior is changing on a weekly basis as they get new data points all the time, right? And uh, as an example, whilst our upper-end lodges, probably Kruger, their whole seven-star experience, probably relied quite heavily on an elderly traveler, typically from Europe or the U.S., right? 
in a COVID environment, they are the very same people who are not encouraged to travel because they are the vulnerable ones. So therefore, those places now have to look for new customer segments to focus on as uh, being a source market for them. Now, I was just thinking disruptive and, and kind of clever little ideas like, for example, getting everyone, all the people who work in uh, tourism in London to drive game vehicles, for example, with Sea South Africa on the side, sort of mobile bin- billboards. Are we doing a lot of that tactical kind of stuff? Absolutely. And, and it's amazing that the sector does not wait for authority bodies such as ourselves to give them permission to do that. It happens organically by themselves. And ours is to profile it and give it a platform, essentially. Oh, fantastic. And and just moving on to sport, how, how big a role does sport play? Because we have what the Lions Rugby Tour next year coming out here. How are we going to handle something like that? Absolutely. So one of the items we're really driving quite hard is to get approval from uh, Cabinet to say, listen, the Lions Tour is probably the biggest item that we have on our calendar for 2021. It needs to be our coming out party, if I can call it, you know, introducing ourselves back to the world. And it's scheduled to be in time between August, probably October next year. But we need at least about nine months worth of runway building towards that in order to make sure that that's in place, essentially. So almost trying to drive this country to put a pin on the ground that says we will be doing this. We will be doing this in a very big way. And then what that does, it galvanizes everyone towards a, you know, a focal point and also starts to warm up the engine of the entire value chain, you know, towards that. So, so we're really looking at the Lions Tour as being, as I said, the climax of the activities for 2021. But obviously a lot of work needs to be done before that, you know, and then opening up the sector international borders much earlier so that we have and iron out all of the other problems before then. Just turning to CISA. Just go behind your mask. What do you do for fun, Cesar? <laughs> Apart from travel. You're not allowed to say travel. <laughs> um, no, well, um, what I do for fun is I spend a lot of time um, with my family. Um, I've got two young kids who are in boarding schools, one in the Eastern Cape, one in the Midlands. So I spend a lot of time going to visit them. And I really enjoy the outdoors. Uh, my son is a big uh, sportsman. He plays good cricket. And, uh, you know, I just love going to that side of the world and just kind of interacting and um, socializing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm forever learning. So, uh, you know, getting to meet new people, getting to uh, engage in conversations that take this country forward, that take us forward as well. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's my simple, boring, but exciting life at the same time. No, I think you must have a very exciting life. And, and here's a curveball question. What scares you? What scares me is we have such an opportunity in this country to get it very right or get it very wrong. And if we get it very right, I'll be the happiest person ever. If we get it very wrong, the the consequences and the impact of that are very, very dire. You know, just right across the board, you know, it's, it's the times... It's like sometimes this country is like a powder keg. Anything can kind of implode at any given point in time, you know, whether you're looking at issues around corruption, as an example, issues around inequality we have in the country, issues around racism that have kind of spurred up recently. We need to get our act together. And I think uh, we've got such an opportunity with such a beautiful country, with such beautiful opportunities to get it right. 
that's getting it wrong scares me. And I think we all kind of need to roll up our sleeves and just not give up on this country and really, really do what it is that is required to take us forward. I think that's very wise, Cesar. Thank you. And thank you for your insights and thank you for your time. It's been very, very interesting for me. A famous saint said once, the world is a book and those who do not travel read only one page. Thanks for listening to Market Share with me, Reg Lascaris. I'll be back soon with another episode giving my take on brands and companies, big and small, in South Africa and elsewhere. So chat soon. Cheers.